Hello, it's Charlotte's sister, C. Farrell, host of Powered by Age, Canada's longest-running senior-led podcast that invites you to do what you love. This podcast is for you if you love writing or telling stories, if you love sharing poetry or doing interviews. This podcast is for you if you love working on ways to create age-friendly cities. This podcast is for you if you love learning how to tame technology and get more out of virtual events, if you love finding more ways to share your heritage or traditions. If you love any of these things, you can go beyond listening and join our weekly podcast group. Simply email pbaafc at gmail.com and put your name in the subject line. Powered by Age is sponsored by the Government of Canada, New Horizons Grant, the 411 Senior Center Society, and GNF Financial Group. Good afternoon and welcome to Powered by Age. This is November 11th. I'm sure many of you at 11.11 this morning did stop and think about Remembrance Day. We are going to today be doing some different things like having people are going to speak about not only veterans, but people in their lives that are important that have done something memorable. And we have uh, some people who bought an item whether it's a photo, a button, or something that is uh, indicative of someone that they want to remember. So right now I want to say that I am grateful that we are doing this show on the unceded lands of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Seguatus people. We hope to see within our lifetime the reconciliation that is due those in other nations across Canada. So I think what we will do is first just ask you as you introduce yourself, what is remarkable, what is memorable to you about Remembrance Day? Leslie? Um, What is remarkable to me about Remembrance Day? I've never really thought about that. It's just been part of my life for so long. Um, I think what's remarkable is that um, people can have two different takes on it. Um, some people seem to remember it as an opportunity to glorify war and other people remember it as an opportunity to remember the horrors of war and hope that it never happens again. So, yeah, that's what kind of surprises me about this holiday. Yeah, I've noticed that too, that that in the encouragements that are on the gov- some of the government pages is, is encouraging people, those who advocate peace. Some people are actually having gatherings around peace, uh, whereas others, as you say, are honoring the dead, honoring war monuments, etc. What about you, uh, Ramona? So this entire concept of Remembrance Day is new to me. And I I always used to wonder why they, they they kind of sell poppies so so that you know you have a pin there and so i was reading about that and and that is because the poppies are the flowers that grew on the uh, graves in france and belgium because uh, of the lime which um, the rubble and the debris contained so they have now become a symbol of this day so i I, I think about that when you think of Remembrance Day, the poppies, poppy flower. 
Right, and even the color red is significant, is significant of the uh, co color of blood. But of blood, right. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know that until uh, this weekend, too, when I was reading more and saying that it, in the second year on Normandy Beach, all of the different places where there was all this rubble from the war, that the poppy grew and um, then it's become a symbol of remembering the day, but as well, people not really thinking about it, remembering a symbol of blood. What about you, Chris? Did, did you know that about uh, poppies? Um, well, certainly, um, having been born in England, I certainly know about in Flanders Field, the poppies grow. Mm -hmm. uh, so I kind of grew up with that. Um, and because of my limitations and my not being able to go out the last few years, uh, up until last year and this year, I've been able to uh, get a white poppy from the Britannia, the First Nations women that participate in Britannia made white poppies. Um, so I, I have been wearing the white poppy, which for me is kind of a bit of a, it's not that it's, it's kind of a, a bit of a combination of there's still the poppy um, and the white that, that, uh, that is the sort of goal for peace this year. I think what I've been thinking about is, is the whole Afghanistan situation. Uh, I was just reading, uh, there's an article in the Taiyi that I just opened this morning and about the numbers of uh, interpreters that have been left behind. And so uh, I, I know that Remembrance Day historically has focused on World War One and World War Two, and then a little bit on Korean, a little bit on Vietnam, but I'm so conscious that there's so many other conflicts going on around the world where, where people die and people are killed. And um, uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure of, of the benefits. Um, you look at the last few like Iran and, and uh, Afghanistan, there's, or Iraq, there's this devastation that's caused for so many people, not just, not just the foreigners that go to fight, but also the people who are living in those countries. And mostly it's civilians that gets killed. So for me, Remembrance Day focuses to, I mean, the, the sort of the historical one focuses on our service people who have gone and got killed. But for me, there's usually more um, people who live in those countries that have been killed. So it's I have a bit of a conflict around, around the day. Um, plus, the funny thing is that my mother's, my, my mother's middle name is Alsace. And, uh, and I, have, I have no idea... I mean, clearly for me, that's some indication that some uh, relative of hers was probably uh, a soldier during that during that First World War. But I have no no history. Um, I know my mom hated the name, 
Um, <laughs> but there, for me, there seems to be some personal connection there that I don't know much about. So those are my thoughts. Very long-winded, I know. No, but very important because that I have kind of the same conflict because the typically people will say to um, people, you know, uh, who might have on their uniform or that they know we're in the service, thank you for your service. But the service involves so much pain. I, my father uh, was a veteran of but several wars. And it's kind of a pain for my, my childhood because at the time that before I was born, he was in a group of black soldiers that were called up, people that were in the first, uh, the ninth cavalry and 10th cavalry, Hearth's cavalry. And those soldiers were not being treated equitably by the US government. Uh, wasn't even known what they were, were called up to do because they had a lot of secret missions that they were given and a lot of training. And I didn't really find out till near the end of his life when some of the soldiers came to pay tribute and were talking about um, things that they, they did, the conflict of serving there and then coming back to the States and uh, not being able to get jobs, being put into shoveling and cleaning latrines, but also that there were some, some places where they did hold the ground. And so it makes me feel sad sometimes in thinking about his service record. You know, he was in the Korean War, um, then off, offshore for uh, the Vietnam War. And then working, he continued to be a retired military person working with the young recru recruits and talking about the consciousness of uh, being armed, but at the same time caring for people and feeling regret. I found that a lot of people, I mean, he was born in 1915, so he'd be 100-some years old now. But at the time he passed, uh, there were a lot of older veterans that were talking about just the regret of having been in that position and regret that they feel over the people that were killed and feeling even a celebration, a holiday that celebrated that, that they really, you know how we talk a lot about mental health things that are needed, that even people that have gone off to Afghanistan in these recent wars, there's a lot of regret people have over the ways that we kill people, you know, using smart bombs or using the technology to blow up things where nearby there was a hospital. And we don't really have a day with equal to Remembrance Day, a Veterans Day, that's a mental health day or reconciliation day where people could really talk about their feelings. And I think that that's one of the things that's left for us to do is just as some people are talking about peace, that we need to set a day where people who've served in these wars and who've lost limbs and who still now, you know, some people can't even live with their families, that we need to um, put a page on, put a day aside where we can just really thank people for their service by giving the mental health, emotional health that is support that's needed. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Yeah, I remember my father would, uh, he would avoid talking about the war except for certain very specific stories that he would tell. Um, and I remember, and we called it Armistice Day in the UK. And uh, every November the 11th, there would be a service broadcast on television. And all he would say was just turn it off. He didn't want to know. Mm -hmm. So I think people that have actually seen the horrors of war don't want to celebrate it and, and want just simply want to forget. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good thing for being able to feed back to agencies, governments, the people that plan the celebrations of how can we bring more attention toward peace and toward the healing, long-term yeah. healing that's needed within it, every generation of people that have been part of the war side of military operations. The the other thing that um, that has come to my mind, I don't know if you've watched the series on the Knowledge Network about the untold or unknown history of British Columbia. And one section, one piece of that was on, on the involvement of Aboriginal people who fought in the various wars and who the and and I think for um, black black people from BC who were also involved in the war, and when they came back after having fought, there was the expectation that they would be given the vote, and they weren't. Right. In fact, in fact, if I'm if I've got it correct, <coughs> Aboriginal people didn't have the vote until something like 1960. Wow. So. Uh, yes. So, and I know that the other, a couple of days ago, there was a special um, remembrance, sort of a remembrance day for Aboriginal veterans uh, yes. that got celebrated. So there's, it also brings up for me, the, the injustices and the, the inequalities um, that have existed in our society. And, and what, <laughs> while we um, constantly thank those who went to fight, we only thank a portion of those who went to fight. We're not really, we're not, we don't really thank everybody that went to fight. So, you know, for me, it's permeated with a lot of, I have a lot of conflict um, around, around this as, you know, as, as I think, you know, probably we all do, yeah. And by the way, that's a very good series. I think there's four or mm-hmm. I think there's four. Um, I, I think I saw that one that you were talking about. Uh-huh. Because then the connection to having an Indigenous Remembrance Day. I thought, but it was there. It was like a stamp. We put it on. But there weren't, wasn't any special things on the main news. It wasn't anything oh. to let other people know how to participate, what was the history. It was just like oh. a checklist. Wow, we did that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, sure they, they, I'm sure they organized it for themselves. That's right. the thing, right? Without the national support and understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse, what do you think? Well, um, I I think one of the things I really think about a lot when I think about Remembrance Day is um, just sort of the the position of privilege we're in that that is sort of our main point of contact with war um, in my day-to-day life anyway. Like it's not uh, an everyday reality the way it is for a lot of people around the world um, that we're sort of able to just have sort of this one one day a year where we collectively um depending on on who is who is organizing the commemoration either commemorating the lost or celebrating the sacrifices of of soldiers or or what have you um but yeah just the fact that it's it's a limited sort of prescribed part of our lives as opposed to it being an everyday reality it's 
usually dominates my thoughts uh, on days like today. Oh, Ramona. You I know you said it. it's that this this holiday is new to you. Uh, did you have any particular uh, thoughts or did you want to go on to the person that you want to share remember uh, memory about? Sure. I'd like to, although um, this isn't something to do with the war, but it is someone who has really, I mean, shaped me into the person who I am. And uh, so I hope you don't mind my singing a bit in (laughs) in the way (laughs) I describe her. So may I start? Yes. Okay. Who is she? This captivating woman with her Greta Garbo looks Inhaling the fragrance of the gorgeous peonies at the island gardens, her gray-green eyes sparkling with humor, she moves elegantly on her stilettos, and the lyrics of Costello's song, She, ring in my ears. She may be the face I can't forget, the trace of pleasure or regret, Maybe my treasure or the price I have to pay me. I'll take her laughter and her tears and make them all my souvenirs. The meaning of my life is she. Yes, she's Olympia Rosa, Maria Lobo, my mother. It's a bright Sunday morning at a house in South Bombay. I want to laze around in bed, but my mother's voice wakes me up with a peppy song. You've got to wake up in the morning with a smile on your face and show the world all the love in your heart. The air is filled with the tantalizing aroma of her Sunday special dishes. Go on dishes, potato chops, that is mashed potatoes, filled with succulent minced meat and paldin, a golden fish curry in golden coconut sauce. As I slowly wake up, I think of the many things my mother means to me. I still remember how she taught me to sing as if I was on a stage. I am four years old and my mother says, stand on the bed and hold this ladle in front of your mouth like a mic. And then she teaches me Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which is still my favorite song. During the Mumbai rains, um, the heavy rains bring Mumbai to a standstill with the floods. Schools are shut, keeping students at home. My mother made this such a fun occasion for my brothers and I. She kept us enthralled with the exploits of Perry Mason, the hero of her favorite Earl Stanley Gardner novels. She got us to create the most interesting scrapbooks, cutting out pictures from old magazines and encouraging us to write a short article in colorful felt pens or an amusing caption. Um, All our neighbors loved her as they could rely on her to come and help out with their sick children. I felt very jealous and lonely at times when she rushed out late at night to apply a cold compress 
or give a foot bath to some child or the other in our apartment building. My mother was my best friend. She accompanied me to see French films at the Alliance Francaise. She was so proud of me standing first in school and college. And her joy knew no bounds when I was felicitated by the governor of Bombay after the PhD. To my mother, being well-groomed uh, and having a good posture was very important. When I set out for my exams in college, I'd hoped she would wish me all the best, but instead she called out, Mona girl, stand straight. And when her right side was paralyzed after a stroke, my, my, my sister rushed to Bombay from Canada to see her. Though she was tired and jet lagged, my sister insisted on going to see my mother who lived at my brother's house. And we traveled there together in a, in a rickshaw, which is a three-wheeler with its sides open, a hair flying in the wind. I couldn't help thinking of how happy my mother would be to see my sister. But my mother took one look at my sister and raising her left hand to her hair, she indicated that we should smoothen our disheveled hair. Well, some things never change. And that was our mother. As the song says, she is the reason I survive the why and wherefore I'm alive. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. That was wonderful. <laughs> and the song really carried us through. I could picture her. I, I could picture, I, I was anticipating that when, she, when you got there, she was going to tell you to stand straight or something, but still the way that you <laughs> talked about her, I saw the sweetness. I didn't feel like she's just a complainer, but just the sweetness that she had and concern about how you <laughs> she was raising you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte. You got it. <laughs> Yeah, I'll say to uh, people who might be listening to our podcast, one of the things that we have on our poweredbyage.com website is called Spins. And those are stories, poems, interviews, and novelties that people have written. So what I'm going to do is uh, Jesse will give you his email and have you set up a time that you can read that story to be one of the spins on our website. Uh, we're encouraging other people, if you have a story, we're going to build the biggest reservoir of stories uh, about Canadians, of stories that people that are part of our uh, podcast have written, because a lot of times people think of just memoirs or they think of stories as just for the rich and famous or the people that uh, the e-channel or uh, somebody else has talked about, but just the delightfulness of the way you spoke about your mother, we could picture her and open this opportunity for other people to uh, share their story about a loved one, or even to share a story about yourself. Leslie's sharing a story about herself, <laughs> interesting things in Japan, and just taking us there. I think that people who've heard that story have said, well, how much would it take? How could I go? Is that still possible? Are they still welcome? So we welcome your stories and your poems because uh, it does show the great reservoir of interesting things that we as older golden people have. <laughs> uh, now, uh, did anyone bring any item uh, that's a memorabilia item that you wanted to show? Oh, I've got something. Just a minute. 
No, I'm sorry, I can't lay my hands on it right now. Um, I had a root map that uh, when I was sorting out my father's effects, um, it's a map of Europe and it's his route march across Europe during World War II, but I don't know where it is right now. I put it in a safe place. I have a handbook and my father, when he was, were, I have two dads. I had the wonderful thing of growing up with my stepfather who was really my dad, my daddy. And then my, my father that I wrote to communicated with starting when I was in, I guess, uh, junior high and then met um, as an older teenager. But then throughout life had this wonderful different balance of men's perspectives on lives. But one thing they had in common was having these guidebooks. My uh, stepfather, both of them had a similar thing, were being born close to the depression. Uh, they gave up going to finishing high school so that their sister could go into uh, business school. In my stepfather's case, it was that uh, his sister wanted to be in, in cosmetology, and he was determined that she would have the fee, she would be able to go, that um, she and, and his mother would have what they needed. And so uh, he didn't get to do a lot of, of, of reading, but he required us to every day, he asked what was in the morning paper. I mean, he, he could read, but then he wanted us to... Uh, remember what we've made. He made reading a very fundamental point of our daily meals, that you'd bring something that you read uh, in the paper that morning. And he would, if somebody didn't have something, you had to have two things. You'd have to bring a Bible verse to dinner and you'd have to bring something that you read. And then he had these handbooks. So in the car, if we were going somewhere, he had the, you know, the automobile club had either a book about the terrain or a book about the area. And he would read something about it, but it would be in the car so that uh, if somebody even suggested he was lost, he would have the route. Uh, same thing when I went to visit my father in his car, in the glove compartment in the truck, there were each year, I thought, why did they even upgrade the things? It seems like the land is still the same, <laughs> the landmarks, but he had each year. So that was a memorable thing. And, you know, my, my uh, father was a supply sergeant in the army. And so I won't take my laptop in to show you the cupboard, but I've been building a pantry because he had a pantry in his house. He never had less than a hundred pounds of sugar in the house in a steel can <laughs> and, um, you know, cans, uh, a whole shelf of, of, uh, of soups and different things. So that was my, um, my item is to show that this guidebook in, um, you know, we were all talking about different little problems that were happening with the um, media this morning, and sometimes the maps go out. So people who just trust that they can look in their phone and Google something or Google, you know, map quests. What's the one for the, the, the transit system? There was one that people told me when I was wondering when the bus was going to come, they would oh, you know, look at their planner. phone. Trip planner app. Yes, that those things can fail. So it's good to have mm -hmm. uh, a directory <laughs> or a map of the anyway, stuff, wherever I you are. Found it. <laughs> oh wow! And this thing is—it's just about falling apart. It's taped together with all kinds of sticky tape on the back. But um, it's the advance of the Tenth Fusilier Medium Regiment Royal Artillery from Normandy to Germany, July 1944 to May 1945. And it's a map uh, for people who are listening. 
It's a map of Northern Europe. And there's a red line drawn across it, um, which goes through uh, France and Belgium and Holland and into Germany. And uh, I keep saying I'm going to get it framed. I haven't quite got around to it yet, but anyway, oh, yeah, that's, that be... yeah. And we went to Europe for a vacation uh, when my father was still alive. He was quite elderly and his memory wasn't what it used to be. And we were in Brussels and took a picture of the town square. And when we were showing my dad the photos of our vacation, uh, he recognized it immediately. He'd only been in Brussels probably for a couple of days during the war, but and he remembered it. Oh, that's Brussels. That's the town square. So that obviously brought back memories for him too. Hmm. Do you, any of you have memories of any women that were in the war or things that have changed for the way women in the military have been perceived over your lifetime? Well, I know my mother was a driver for the ATS during the war. Um, and after the war, uh, she moved to London with my father. And when she saw the traffic in London, she threw her driver's license away and never got behind the wheel of a car again. <laughs> well, Chris, what are your thoughts on women in the military? Do you think women are treated with more respect? If there Are there more opportunities now? Um, how about a both end? Uh, I mean, we've seen so much uh, rec in recent news about uh, sexual assaults um, uh, on women by other personnel, by women in the military, by other personnel in the military. So it's kind of like, yes, um, there's more <laughs> there's more opportunities and possibilities for women. And it doesn't seem like it's a very safe place to be. And also myself as a woman, as a feminist, I'm not quite sure that I understand why women have fought so hard to be part of this military um, military machine. Um, I also think of Michelle Douglas, who was a lesbian in the military who was uh, expelled from the military because she was a lesbian and took the, the took them to court and actually won her case. So it's for me, the whole issue around women in the military is, is uh, again, a, a very complicated um, reality experience for me, because quite honestly, I really don't understand um, why women want to, <clears throat> there's some things that where as a feminist, I don't want to be equal to a man. I don't want to have that same equal possibilities of killing and being killed. Um, on the other hand, I know that for some women, uh, it's something that's important to them to, to have that, um, that treatment of equality. Um, so, uh, and I'm also aware that, um, I'm, I'm uh, that that people in the military, they have lots of opportunities for education that oftentimes people who are poorer, including women, would not necessarily have that same opportunity. 
And so they don't necessarily go to fight, but they go to uh, they go to take advantage of some of those things that um, that in their own life that they, they couldn't afford. So, um, again, I have very, very, very mixed feelings about the experience of women uh, in the military, um, because more recently, given all that we are hearing in the news, it has not been a very positive experience for for many women. And about time that that people who were involved in the sexual assaults are in fact brought to justice and lose their lose their positions of privilege because that's what it is. I mean, these things happen because of a position of privilege, and it seems that the higher people get in the ranks, the more privilege they presume they have and presumably the less consequences they'll have for their behavior and their actions. So um, I'm happy to see that there's now a woman who, uh, who is in charge and there's a woman minister of defense. Um, so perhaps that might begin to make some differences, uh, but it's, it's an up, it's an uphill battle as far as I can see. And there I say a battle, uh, <laughs> Only it's on, it's on home, it's on home territory. Right. I think the issues, sometimes it gets, you know, muddled because when people try and just define being loyal to your chain of command or uh, doing things, some, some of the physical things that women do are not necessarily beneficial to a woman's body, but in trying to push the one hand, well, you should be able to do everything that a man does in order to be in this rank or in this position, that I think some of those things leave areas for challenge, but also the compassion. Women have often been more associated with the nursing and the compassion, and to honor those things is important because, as you were talking about Afghanistan, there needs to be people in the military uh, who do make decisions about do we bomb a place that's next to a children's hospital? Uh, there've been some documentaries on the numbers of children. Uh, when they did shock and awe in Iran and they were showing all the places they were blowing up and just thinking of there are millions of children who've lost their hearing because they were close to the places that were, were, were blown up. And so having uh, a value that, uh, it, I don't it's a hard line to say women's values. There's some things that have been traditionally associated as being values that women have. I know that there are men that are also compassionate, but this you know statement that always goes on man up, man up, don't be soft, that that it is not soft, that it's a very vital and important for people who worry about uh, in making a battle plan, what does happen to the elderly, the children, the blind? What happens to those people that are close to a target site? And talking about uh, what are the other things? You know, if women in military can also have the right and recognition to argue for peaceful alternatives. That always the ways that, you know, I think you said during during your our lifetime. <clears throat> the way of war has changed to be more uh, distance oriented, that you can do things with gadgets. Well, 
should there be more talk about even the way to resolution, the way to peace? What are the other ways to change human behavior? Because as you talked about with Afghanistan, we have all those people that are left there. Uh, Those people are being horribly treated because they were friends of the, you know, the enemy of the conquerors, but we needed to have, I mean, this needs, I think there are things that you're saying that need to be brought into the discussion. And how do you see lay people? How do you see us as, as residents, as people who are not in the military? What, how, how can we have a role in getting these types of things discussed? Yeah, I think just by doing what we're doing, just, you know, bringing it out. Yeah, to people's attention. Jesse, as a public affairs person uh, and someone involved in communications, what what things can people do to have some of these questions um, put into discussion or into action or consideration? One thing, like Leslie said, is speaking about it on platforms like this and and other media platforms. Lots of uh, community media outlets will be happy to to share stories like this, but also uh, directly contacting uh, your political representative. You can send a letter or uh, make a phone call to tell them how important this issue or any given issue is. Uh, And there are a lot of uh, nonprofits and other community organizations that uh, already do work on uh, things like uh, seeking for peacekeeping and, and things like that and, and um, remembering the victims of war who are not uh, sort of combat participants. Um, and so finding a, finding a good organization that will uh, that is already doing the work is a good way to, to get involved and, and help support uh, progress on this issue. In teaching, have there been opportunities within the classroom or students you've worked with to talk about issues like this? Yeah. In fact, when you were speaking, I was going to say that this, I think, is a powerful way to to bring about change uh, through education. Because I find that children are very receptive to ideas. And if we teach them when they are young enough about you know, how, how things should be, how they are. And even through history, as a history teacher, uh, there was this practice uh, when Chris was speaking about uh, sexual abuse. So there was this uh, practice of, uh, it was referred to as Johar, and this took place in the state of uh, Rajasthan among the Rajput women. So when it was certain that... Uh, you know, the the Rajputs would be defeated and they would be invaded by the Muslim um, armies. So, so in order to avoid being sexually abused and raped, the women, along with their children, committed mass self-immolation. So this was a regular practice. They, they burnt themselves and all their belongings along with their children to death. So this took place in the 14th century. So it's not new that uh, women are abused in times of war. So so making these children aware that these are the things which can happen, I think is a is a powerful uh, creator of change. Rather, I mean, I like Jesse's idea that you speak in 
these kind of uh, media communities or to your political representative to some extent our voices can be heard but children are going to be the the future right so they can be the face of change if we can you know explain to them about these kind of atrocities that have been committed and and to somehow relate it to their lives because every one of them has mothers some may have sisters or and so whatever so bringing it closer home explaining what has happened in the past and how we can avoid it in the future for me uh, personally i used to always tell my um, the girl students in my class you know certain certain things that they could do to protect themselves because many of them belonging to certain religious groups used to um, get them married off when before they completed their graduation sometimes against their wishes but they had to do they had to follow that and uh, and so i would always encourage them or sometimes try to get in touch with their parents because some of them are really brilliant and they had expressed wishes of you know wanting to become a lawyer or something like that so i would like try to convince their parents like with supervision please permit them to continue their studies even after they are married and to the girls i would always encourage them to somehow become economically independent and have a bank account i know these sound like very very uh, simple basic things to all of you who live in this first world country but for the developing nations these are very serious problems they, they are forced to they are forced to remain in that abusive kind of a marriage simply because they cannot afford economically to fend for themselves if they step out of it the parents will not accept them back this is a very clear principle once you are married your life has to be with your husband no matter what is the situation the girl is always held responsible for anything that goes wrong so i would always i know it, it would make me unpopular but i would still tell them always it had sometimes no connection with the topic in hand but i would always tell them you know please please see to it that you somehow try to work and earn money and save it in your own name with no connection with your husband no doubt he may love you a lot but but still you have to have your own money sort of a thing so and that's how i feel and many of them remember me i'm quite astonished like i'm up to today although i'm not there i keep getting reports from some of my friends that they they met my friends and they asked where i am i think these kind of things were important to them no one would tell them that right their own parents would not tell them that because that goes against the practice the social norms etc so but teachers can have a powerful very powerful effect on ch- in changing the course of history itself and what you're saying speaks to um one of the images one of the things we talked about in an age friendly city one of the points of the podcast was showing the the resilience and the knowledge that older people have that we're not passive we do know about things like the need to have um some days they called it a what was it 
it was a chest. She was supposed to have this uh, something. I, see, I didn't have it. <laughs> it's a chest. Building up your wish list is this this chest. There was some kind of chest you were supposed to have. But uh, but my, my mother and my auntie both all advocated have your own money, have a savings account, have money that you are responsible for. Because as Chris mentioned in that documentary in their story, it showed how a lot of people of color, uh, people of lower income, sometimes the military really does, uh, they, they visit families of those people. It happened with my cousin. They visited my 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 uh, his mother. He wanted to go into art school. They said, oh no, if you go into the military, we'll pay for your career, we'll pay for your education, and then you can go to art school. Well, he's done four tours and he's never been to art school yet. <laughs> and he's now, uh, it, it, so being able to, to encourage economic development, encourage spending and having your own money for girls, but also as well uh, for boys to just not have the decision to go into any form of military being made because you are too poor or can't afford to live in um you know, in the in the society, in the city that you live in, the country that you live in. One of the things that I kind of wonder about when you talk about uh, when you talk about the youth and the long, younger people, um, at the moment, there's so much focus on climate and climate change, and I think that movement. Um, People are, well, certainly the younger generation and some of us older people as well, recognize that this is a global reality. And even the pandemic um, that we've been going through is that it, this is a, a global reality and it affects, it affects, affects people across the globe. And I wonder whether um, somehow or other those kinds of more awarenesses and understandings will lead to uh, or can uh, lead to people thinking more about others in other countries as human beings and similar with similar hopes and dreams to the ones that that we might have, perhaps culturally different, but still having some other thoughts and that that if we if we could if we could see ourselves as part of a global family that we don't run off and kill people on the other side of the world uh, that we we learn to have a bit more respect so i don't i don't know if this is a um, this is a time when some of that can happen um but I, I kind of wonder because uh, some of the youth are taking some um, pretty strong leadership positions. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I think that's where I would be a, a bit hopeful um, that there might be a better understanding of how we are all connected. And, and the other thing that occurs to me is I'm so, so tired of hearing people talking about democracy. I don't think people know what the hell democracy is. I, I lived in a country where there was a military dictatorship 
And so I know what that looks like. And I know how the how things like the media were stifled. And, and then I come back to Canada and I find, oh, yes, well, no, it doesn't happen in exactly the same way. But you have some rich guy who owns all the media and who then controls the stories that come out in, in the media. So um, I know we talk a good talk about democracy, but I'm not convinced that we actually have a democracy. In, in Canada and in the United States, in order to be, in order to run successfully for a political office, you've got to have a lot of money. So that in and of itself is, cannot be considered democracy because the, the ability to get involved and to be part of policymaking and, and all that stuff is limited to the people who have the money. So, uh, so we, we usually, we, our governments justify going into other countries and bombing and shooting because they're protecting democracy. Well, uh, now that's just a buzzword. Doesn't work for me. Yeah, go, ahead, uh, go back and read George Orwell, Politics in the English Language. <laughs> well, you know, I think 101. when you talked about other ages, uh, we saw an example when we had uh, the discussion around senior issues, uh, the uh, grandmother who heard her granddaughter talking about going out to get arrested around uh, protesting the, the cutting down of the old growth trees. And she said, well, let me go uh, because you have your life in front of you and these charges will be bad. And so she organized other grandmothers, but there, was, there are some evidence of people working intergenerationally and people who are in our wonderful years <laughs> being able to have the perspective of saying, you know, I'm, if I get a charge, it's not going to keep me from getting a job. I've already had a job. And then the shame it brought to the, 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 the police to be putting these handcuffs and putting older people down on the ground to, to um, take them to jail, that it did have an effect on them making this new um, this new moratorium on the, the old growth cutting. It's not everything people ask for, but nothing was happening. So as you were saying, you wonder now with, you know, we've got eight, nine-year-olds, people who stayed out of school, that the, the unification among young people about climate change without having a computer system, without not, ha not having the, the mainstream media saying there's going to be a shutdown, the schools had to be shut down because they said we're going to be out of school protesting. So I think that as they feel committed to certain things, that the reservoir of knowledge that we have, that the experience people have of the calamities of war or injustice, I think that that will help, as you say, get more people globally talking and maybe shift a different type of consciousness about alternatives to war. So now you've heard some of the things we've moved for. We've recognized the ways that people are sharing and honoring veterans who did serve in wars, the people who are recognizing and remembering people who went to war, but went to war and with a different consciousness to make changes in the military, to uh, make changes in the countries that they were going and have come back and are working within institutions to help people uh, have more health care, have better education, have different jobs, have a different perspective. So 
maybe by next year's Remembrance Day, we'll be remembering the shift that's occurred from being less uh, concerned about honoring all of the battles that have happened in the past and about excitement of the new consciousness that has evolved on making the word world uh, a happier, healthier, more peaceful place. And also the acts of kindness. Uh, if we have a day where we celebrate the acts of war, we can also have the days like July, the, the month of July, there's kindness, but we could have uh, kindness day. And in kindness day, be able to have memorabilia things people bring to the table, stories, poems, et cetera, that will help people to have a day to remember that. So thank you for your discussions. Thank you for encouraging other people. Uh, those people that have been sending emails about things that they would like to hear, we will be doing something on how seniors stretch, save, and are now learning other ways to earn money. Uh, we are going to continue with looking at the transition from people that are writing their books and memoirs. <laughs> uh, I've been sending you some resources through the email, but these will also be more things that we will be recording as the uh, stories, poems, interviews, and novelties on our site. Quite a few people send an email. Oh, I'm happy to see the seniors, the range of things that you talk about. So we are really working still toward that goal of having not only an age-friendly city, but the characteristics of an age-friendly world and the type of respect that we want people to have and to activate, not have people feel like, oh, it's too much or I'm too old. But as Jesse mentioned, you can write a letter, find out who are the people responsible for whatever services. We will be having next week some two different elements of breaking news. Uh, the Star Institute at Simon Fraser did a project with the 411 Senior Center. They uh, gave people an opportunity to provide feedback of what they felt about the system set up for uh, putting your vaccination information into your phone. And so you will hear a round table of people who will talk about what they discovered uh, in going directly to seniors. And I think more than 500 people were contacted. So we will have that and you'll have an opportunity, the people that are live in the podcast to ask people questions and give feedback about the research. There's also going to be breaking news from TELUS about a new um, package and that they have different pricing for high-speed internet for seniors. So as the radio station for, for the 411 Senior Center and other senior centers, there are people from different senior centers, people from Ontario, other parts of, of uh, the country that listen to our podcast. Um, we are definitely making that shift and welcoming ideas that you have. Uh, Ramona is going to be working, I think, toward one on brain health. People have, it's more than just they're saying, people say, oh, seniors are forgetful, or they're going through a second childhood. There's a whole world of information about brain health and exciting things that are happening. She's, she's going to be working toward having a presentation on that. And then Jamie Kamen's a board member of the 411, who's also an artist, is going to do something on art, showing people that artists isn't just for painters, not everyone, special people are endowed, that there is art within us and how art can also be used uh, politically or for advocacy. So we have some exciting things coming up and I welcome other people to continue sending email, 
come on to our podcast and we will continue to be powered by age. And you can contact me at pbaafc at gmail.com. Powered by age, agefriendly city at gmail.com. So until this time again next week, I'll bid you adieu and thank you. Thanks, Charlotte. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Thank you.